Demons discuss Take 25, the one with dosage compensation. Welcome to Demons Discuss, the unofficial podcast about the All Souls universe and the topics that orbit it. We are your hosts, Angela, Jean, and Valerie. I'm Valerie. With me is Angela and Jean, but we're not alone. Who do we have with us, Angela? We have Dr. Shelley Carter with us again. Yay! Yay! We didn't scare her away! <laughs> it takes a lot to scare me. <laughs> That's why you're our people. But hi, listeners. Hello. Hello, Hello everybody. Hello. <laughs> so, <laughs> you may be wondering why we brought back Dr. Shelley after we haven't pestered her enough in the last episode when we talked about science. More questions have come up from both listeners and us. So we thought we'd answer some of them today and talk about the thoughts we've had since we've wrapped up our discussion of a discovery of witches. And Shelley's going to jump in with some non-science stuff, too. So it'll be a real treat today. Maybe Maybe first start with our title of our episode. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so dosage compensation um, is a concept in biology where differing amounts of a gene product, or if you have multiple copies of a gene, sometimes those need to be balanced in an organism. And it can be more than additive if you have too much. Um, and so, obviously, you've got three demons and you throw in a vampire. The, the chaos is more than additive, I would say. Um, but then also what we need to do is we need to minimize when we have fewer numbers of a gene product. And that's really what's coming into play when we're talking about witches and vampires having two of our creature chromosomes and demons only having one. So I was also inspired to select this title by one of the questions that I was asked in advance. And there are diagrams that I believe Val is going to put in the show notes. Yay! You can't Woo-hoo. see, but I'm rubbing my hands together. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> With glee. <laughs> yes. Yes. So let's start this off with discusser emails. Jean, go ahead. Who do you have? Oh, actually, my first discusser email is actually a voicemail. It's from Karina, and she even sends us witchy tingles. So let's listen to that. Hi, demons and listeners. Just touching base for the end of A Discovery of Witches. I bought it when it was initially released and was hooked instantly. I have read these books multiple times and being able to discuss them has been wonderful. I have enjoyed every moment of listening to everyone and their thoughts and knowledge relating to this universe. When I first read A Discovery of Witches, I didn't know it was the first in the series, so I was surprised by the ending and then very happy finding out that there were other books coming. I'm looking forward to all future discussions about the All Souls world. Witchy Tingles, Karina. Witchy Tingles to you, Karina. Angela, who do you have? I have an email from Patricia. She says, hello, demons, my favorite mad, bad, and dangerous to know ladies. Always a joy to listen to your podcast and read the posts and demonic discussers, which side note, that is our Facebook group. It was amazing for me to see all the feedback I received about my question on the validity of DNA tests and how Dr. Shelley answered so swiftly to my concerns. Final thoughts on Ada is that that is the book that I've reread the most out of the trilogy, probably because of the real-time readings. I love how the topic of grief is explored in the books. Personally, I've lost three people during the last 12 months. The book offers me comforting concepts like the idea of communicating with deceased relatives and get advice and encouragement. The last sentence of the book is so powerful. Remember the past and await the future. 
I strive to do this by remembering the gifts of those who have passed by living the best I can in the moment and believing the future can be magical, intention made real. She goes on a little bit about uh, some other things and some fandom comments. You can see the full email in our show notes, but she says, bye for now, Patricia. So, Thanks, Patricia. Yeah, thank you so much. It's very poignant thoughts, and uh, we're glad that we have created our Facebook group. And Dr. Shelley, you are a very active part of it, and you you <laughs> you laid on the law when you gave – I mean, it, it is. It's impressive to see you at work uh, <laughs> answering the questions. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so, but I think I, what was her question? I'd like what, what uh, DNA tests are. Was it the reliability, or which ones to use? I can't remember. Oh, whether it was a zodiac thing. Uh, yeah, yes, like as yes, far yes. as predicting well, and making up stuff, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but yeah, so Patricia's question was about um, how much of the DNA testing is actually valid science versus marketing and a company just stringing together a bunch of information and saying this is what it means. So Excellent. And your answer was? <laughs> my, ans- my answer yes. was absolutely. Um, the science is there, but there are a couple of things that everyone needs to keep in mind. And one of the biggest is that um, scientists like to paint these pretty neat pictures of how biology works. And it does work like that when you are looking at averages. So numbers of markers associated with an entire population. But when you dig down down to an individual, we're just a tiny piece of a statistic. And so within statistics and within averages, obviously they're called averages because you're going towards the middle. You're going to have people that don't meet that ideal situation. So that always has to factor into play. And then the DNA is absolutely there, but that just because you have a DNA sequence or you have a set of DNA sequences doesn't necessarily represent who you are as a person. Or if we're talking about disease markers, there are so many environmental factors that are going to come into play that just in the majority of cases, just because you have a disease marker does not mean you're going to end up with a disease. So I think people just need to take everything with a grain of salt. I think one of the concerns were that insurance companies might use these DNA tests if they're in a database or something to make some cash off of people that might show disease markers, you know, as like a pre, you know, yeah, like condition. A, a, yeah, yeah, pre-existing condition. Yeah. And Jean, Jean, thank you very much for whipping out the actual law on that one. So <laughs> genetic discrimination is illegal in the U.S. So so far. And, yeah, so far. Yes, Gene, please, ex- so please expand. Yes. So far. Um, they can't use it. They cannot use any kind of data that comes up from a, a genetic test when it comes to rating you for insurance, for giving you a job. It, it all kind of spins off the whole idea of the uh, AIDS testing. It's all related to that because they put up some anti-discriminatory laws years ago about that. And as genetic testing expanded, they did something similar because just because you have genetic markers until you develop a disease, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a predisposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that first came up with the Tay-Sachs, to be honest with you. Yes, probably. Because they started doing testing for that. Yeah, that was one of the first genetic disorders. Um, And so for people who are not familiar with Tay-Sachs, it's common in a ethnic group of a Jewish ancestry. The Ashkenazis, I think, right? Yes. And so it is very common. And they were one of the first groups that began to routinely advise members of that ethnic background to undergo genetic testing. Good to know, though. Yeah. 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 Well, it also plays into the whole HIPAA thing, too, as far as not sharing medical privacy, which is interesting because Australia and uh, Great Britain are behind us in that respect, legally, since they like to lord it over us so much sometimes about how backwards (laughs) we are. (laughs) 
<laughs> We're so used to it. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. I, know. <laughs> I think we have to shut up for a while, though. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're in a rough patch right now. Okay. <laughs> we'll get over it. <laughs> We always do. One time, a discusser posted Justin Trudeau with his Superman. I'm like, stop bragging. You're just rubbing it in I their know, faces. that's rude. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just to be all nice uh, to Canadians. <laughs> all right, so I have a discusser email from Wendy, and this one is also truncated. So I'll put the full version in the show notes. And she opens with her famous Hello, Lady Demons. Hi, Wendy. Hi. Um, she says, brace yourself. This one is going to be long. Thoughts on the podcast, thoughts on a discovery witches and questions for Dr. Shelley. Here you go. So like I said, we condensed it a bit and the full version will be available in show notes. So she goes on to comment and she says, the house's magic is a lot like grim old place in Harry Potter. It's just there when you need it and not when you don't or when the house thinks you don't. That's a good comparison, I think. Grim old place. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, hideout where Dumbledore's army hid out, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a good comparison. About Matthew's comment where he wouldn't trust his 1590s self with Diana, I thought maybe none of them understood what happens to a person that goes back in time they were in previously. Once they go back, memories, opinions, and behaviors come flooding back and go to the forefront of his and her mind. And I would agree. And she also loved that Nathaniel challenged Matthew. It was a way to force Matthew forward. And I agree with that. Because we were talking about all the mansplaining and the millennial. Yeah, <laughs> right, well, right, 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 yeah. yes. Well, and it was interesting that as soon as uh, Marcus had someone else who uh, in no way, shapes or form was actually a contemporary, but could sort of be viewed as a contemporary, he went all millennial. I was like, hello, you were definitely old yes. enough to not be doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, great point. Yeah, he did. (laughs) He found the bag wagon to tan, tan, you know, to tie himself to. So, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, here's the interesting thing, though. I mean, and I'm I'm jumping way ahead. As far as vampire peer groups Uh interest me, because they may not have all been turned at the same time, but they seem to have these peer groups. And it's like Marcus and Galloglass, and and to the extent that we hear about Jason and maybe even Miriam a little bit. They all seem to be kind of a peer group more, because especially with Miriam, she seems to be more with Marcus and the younger guys than the Matthews and the Baldwins. So it's more like a that would be a generational thing then. Yeah, it's a weird generational thing, and I, I think this interlude with Nathaniel and Matthew, or Matthew and Marcus, and the way the dynamics play out is really kind of interesting when you start looking at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now yeah. that makes me wonder. Lens. So we don't really know anything about Miriam's origins, obviously. Oh, she's older than she's way older than Matthew. We do know that, right? We know that. But I'm, I'm generationally. So if she's more with Marcus, then that would argue she's not the daughter of a clan head, like a Philippe's equivalent. She would be the granddaughter of a clan head. You see what I'm saying? If we're, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see exactly what you're saying. Because if she was the daughter of a clan head, she would be Matthew's contemporary or peer group. Yeah, which is an interesting question. Hmm. <laughs> Something to think about. <laughs> I know we're going to give you more questions than yeah. answers, listener. Yeah. It's, that, it's that's our okay. way. It's that our is way. okay. It's okay. This one. Yeah. Yep. 
Totally okay. Okay, so let me continue with Wendy. Wendy goes on to talk about the wills. She loved that uh, Diana left her estate to all of their children, including Matthew's vampire children. She loves the trick-or-treaters. And she said she had a serious awe moment when Matthew was with the little princess who kept hitting her with her wand and saying bippity-boppity-boo. I agree. <laughs> that was so good. Okay, and she goes on to say about her final thoughts of A Discovery of Witches. After reading all three books, multiple times and thinking back on all of them, it almost feels like they are much younger versions of Matthew and Diana in A Discovery of Witches as compared to the other two books. Even though they are only technically a year older in Book of Life, in the experience and life lived, it feels like they age and mature so much more after this book is over. A Discovery of Witches is kind of their teenage or young adult versions of who they become in the other books, despite chronological age. And yeah, experience will do that to you for real. Yeah. I mean, imagine Matthew, though. I mean, he's 1500 years plus and he emotionally, mentally, and not so much physically, but I mean, grows leaps and bounds, matures. He's almost like a frayed thread throughout the Discovery which is a Shadow of Night and he comes together smoothly to make that 10th knot. That's a good connection. Excellent connection. Wow. And she has a question for Dr. Shelley. You ready, Shelley? I'm ready. All right. Questions for Dr. Shelley. There's so many, but this one, <laughs> this one, what is the science behind Diana's having a vampire and a witch baby? If there are twins, shouldn't, shouldn't they be of the same type creature? Or is this the same as a human mother having twins with different skin colors? Changes happening while the baby is forming in the uterus. I can't remember if you've already answered this one. So if you did, please skip it. I'm not going to skip it because I don't think you've answered this. I always thought it was like fraternal twins. Yes, they would be fraternal twins. So yeah. basically, it's just a brother and sister that happened to come out of the womb at the same time. Right. Okay. Anything else to add to that as far as why they're so different? Um, so why they're so different? Um, uh, I can't give a full answer to that right now. These are some of the thoughts percolating. Uh, <laughs> preview of what will probably be my talk at Philly. Right. Um, it'll have to do more with how really with the same chromosomes you end up with such different creatures. Because, you know, we, I think we're pretty much all settled on the idea that there is a creature chromosome. It's not a witch chromosome and a vampire chromosome. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be other influences that determine which parts of that creature chromosome are expressed. And that would then generate a vampire versus a witch. Ooh, a melange. Yes. Of sorts. Nice. And that's it for our discusser emails. Now we're just free to talk and pick Shelly's brain. <laughs> <laughs> but you said you had something for us. Yes, I have something. Uh, and it was actually from the last podcast. Um, I believe it was you, Val, who commented that you could not um, quite put together the pieces of how Sophie and Nathaniel could have a witch child. Right. And that one's actually fairly easy to explain. Okay. But it does require diagrams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to walk through three sets of diagrams that I've already made. So um, then when everyone looks at the diagrams in the show notes, you can kind of reconcile them with what I'm talking to. And I'm turning my computer around so I can look at them and I don't misquote myself, which is always a horrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's start just with humans. Okay. Humans have 22 pairs of chromosomes that we call autosomes or body chromosomes. And then humans have two sex chromosomes. We call the sex chromosome pairs even though they're not always. So if you're a woman, you do have two X's, so it's a true pair. 
If you're a man, you have an X and a Y, but there's still two of them. So we call it a sex pair. All total, 23 pairs of chromosomes in each person. So because we are a sexually reproducing species, individuals have to half the number of chromosomes that go into their reproductive cells, be it an egg or a sperm. Because otherwise, every time you combined, you would be increasing the number of chromosomes. So we're going to half the number so that an egg ends up with one copy each of the 22 chromosomes and one of the X's. Same thing in the male. The sperm ends up with one copy each of the 22, and then it either will have an X or a Y, just depending on how those get split up. So then those recombine in the child, and you're back to having two pairs of everything. Okay, so that's the first diagram, which is just labeled mom, dad, child. And I did stick with the unfortunately sexist notations of the female and male symbol, even though mirror versus arrow are, Mm -hmm. you know, extremely sexist in today's world. But so male and female are labeled that way on the diagram. We forgive you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Now (laughs) let's talk. We're just going to talk about witches in the next scenario because Sophie's parents were witches. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have the exact same thing. You're going to have two copies of the 22 autosomes. You're going to have a witch mom having two X's. And she's also going to have two copies of the creature chromosome. Dad, same thing. Only difference is going to be an X and a Y. Same process. Divide out to egg and sperm. Recombine. A witchy daughter would have two copies of chromosome 22, two X's, and two creature chromosomes. Sometimes, as we are all very much aware, biology is not an exact process. And you have something called a non-disjunction when those egg or sperm are being made. And what happens in a non-disjunction is a pair doesn't get split correctly. So you will end up, for example, with an egg that has a human. You can maybe have two copies of chromosome 21 in one egg and no copies of chromosome 21 in its partner egg after the split. That's a non-disjunction. In that case, in a human, if the egg with two copies of chromosome 21 is fertilized by a normal sperm, you end up with trisomy 21, which is generates what we call Down syndrome. Mm. We can take that same idea to the creature chromosomes. So if you have a non-disjunction event in, I just used the egg as an example, Sophie's mom, witchy mom, had a non-disjunction event. Half of her eggs would have two copies of the creature chromosome and the other half would have no copies of the creature chromosome. When a no creature chromosome egg was then fertilized by a normal sperm from Sophie's witchy dad, the resulting child would only have one creature chromosome, which gives us what? Come on, class. A demon. A demon. Exactly. So that's how two witches can give rise to a demon, which is what Sophie is. Ah, excellent. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Then we just keep going with the math. So we take Sophie, who's a demon, Nathaniel, who's a demon. When they are making eggs and sperm, half of Sophie's eggs will have a creature chromosome. The other half won't. Half of Nathan's, Nathaniel's sperm will have a creature chromosome. The other half won't. So if an egg with a creature chromosome is fertilized by a sperm with a creature chromosome, you're back to having two copies of a creature chromosome, which in this case gives you a witch, which is Margaret. Which is Margaret. I also noted that she was the oddball in her line, right? Right. So it was like, witch, 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 demon, witch, 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 you know? So I was, this time it kind of was like, she's the oddity, not Margaret. She's the oddity. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we see. I mean, most, you don't really see Down syndrome running in families necessarily. 
necessarily. You know, it's something right. something that happens later in life. There are a lot of reasons why that particular one happens, but there are other non-disjunction events that can happen, and they don't really run in families. They're random ac- accidents, fundamentally. Hmm. So surprises. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So thank you for that, and we will put that in the show notes. Yay! It's always exciting to have things explained in a way you can understand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. What else did I have for you, Shelly? While I'm picking your brain, I can't think of it. It'll come like right when we're talking about something else. Probably. Anyway, it always, <laughs> yeah. it always does. I know, I know. Jean, did you have a question for Shelley? It, it skittered away as soon as you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when it, it's kind of like ordering dinner. You yeah. know, go around the table and come back to yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> Angela, I mean, how about you? Yeah, the one one of many times my mind was blown in the last episode with Shelley was the origins of when you're talking about Africa and you. You briefly went over it, but if you could just re-explain it, like why, because we said, why would Stephen and, and Rebecca be in Africa? Um, and you said it made sense because it was, it's a place of origins. Yes. Uh, so yes, human, modern humans are believed to have originated and evolved in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you know, millennia ago. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but because of that, that part of Africa would be the origin of life, human life as we recognize it. And from what we know of the book of life, every everybody being connected and truly just different versions of the same species, it would make sense to me that if Diana represents the mother of a resurgence of creatures, if you will, or back to Brightborn being present in the world and accepted, that she she fundamentally is a modern day Eve for creatures, she would originate. Or Lucy? Or Lucy. Lucy. There you go. Lucy mm-hmm. also, viable option. Um, there would be a connection to Africa. It just makes more, you know, sort of... Um, it's poetic in a way. Poetic. I didn't want to... It's not, it's not logical sense. It's more, you know... <laughs> Yeah. Literary, it's more literary poetic sense. Yes. But it's just, and it's just one more layer that, wow, if Deb was thinking that or, you know, I'm sure because she's, she's just an alien. <laughs> I mean, for all the yeah. stuff that she's able to include in three books, even if it's, you know, a thousand plus pages, she really, no detail is spared, whether it's in your face or underlying. And it's so organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask. And this is a uh, little chicken or the egg here. So... Does science explain magic or does magic explain science? What's your opinion? Why do they have to be mutually exclusive? Oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm of that thought only because I don't understand a lot of science. That's not my forte science, but I think science is magic. I really truly believe I'm it. of that thought too, but I was wondering what Shelley thought. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Okay, so some people run faster than others, right? Yes. Some people are better artists than others. Yes. Some people yes. can do complex math in their heads, correct? Yes. Not me. Well, yes, I say I use the word some. Um, <laughs> if, if we think about this wealth of differences in humans as we see them and know them now, and we think about the wealth of what we truly don't understand, like there are more neuronal connections in your brain than there are stars in the universe. Whoa. Wow. So because of that. Say that again. Please repeat. <laughs> like my French teacher would say, repetez, s'il vous plaît. There are more connections between the neurons in your brain than there are stars in the universe. Wow. Wow. If we think about that, so I very much am of the mindset of Asimov, which is magic is just science we don't understand. 
or science explains away the things it can't understand with magic. Mm. And so given mm. given the wealth that we don't understand about humans, it is a reasonable hypothesis to think that there are abilities we haven't yet identified or we can't explain. Do you think we'll ever grow into them or mutate into them? See, I'm thinking all X-Men now. Yeah, no. <laughs> so that's very much um, in line with what Matthew is talking about the first time Diana visits the lab, but in the reverse. Like it became, uh, okay, so we have to do a little bit of natural selection and evolution uh Lesson first before we do this. Okay. So it's a very it's a very common misconception that organisms mutate in response to changes in their environment. That's not the case. DNA mutates randomly all the time. The mutations are there and some of them do absolutely nothing. Some of them hurt the organism in some fashion. Some of them make the organism better in some fashion. But if we think about the ones that really don't make any change, if the environment changes, some characteristic that was previously not of an advantage may become of an advantage. The classic example of this is the peppered moth. Anybody know the peppered moth story? No. The peppered, no. peppered moths are really great, and I'll try to distill this into like a two-minute explanation. Um, <laughs> peppered <laughs> moths are a species of moths that are very common in, I think, Great Britain. And they're called that because if you look at one, it looks like you had spilled a bunch of pepper. Okay, they're speckledy black and white. Right. And they ordinarily uh, roosted and lived on trees that also had speckledy colored bark. So it was a nice natural camouflage because they're prey for birds. Well, there was a natural random mutation that occurred so that some of the peppered moths would be all black. And that made them stand out against the trees so it was easier for them to be picked off by the Mm. birds. So there would be, in a given population, just a few of the dark versions of the peppered moth. And they survived because, you know, a couple of them survived every generation. They passed it on because the coloration was genetically controlled. Right. Then the Industrial Revolution happens. And the Industrial Revolution, we start burning coal in coal stacks that spit out a bunch of soot. And so the side of the trees that were downwind and faced the coal stacks became coated in coal soot, so they were dark. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, being a dark moth is very advantageous, and the peppered moths get picked off all the time. And so the mutation was already there. It was maintained in the population kind of randomly until the environment changed and made it an advantage. And then more and more of the peppered moths became dark. Ah, wow. That's cool. So if we think about what Matthew's talking about, when the first time Diana goes to the lab, in the early days of of creature history or the early days of creature evolution, the abilities and the magic of witches, specifically as example he used, were very advantageous. But then we have human fear growing. We have witch trials. We have witches hiding their powers, pretending and acting more like humans. The environment shifts. Witches stop relying on their powers so they don't really need them as much, if you will, and therefore there's no pressure to keep them. So witches would survive who maybe had less power. Use it or lose it? Yeah. Huh. Wow. Okay. That just cleared up so much stuff. Yeah. Holy. <laughs> I, I will send, I'll find a, a link to a pepper, a nice summary of the peppered moss story and send it to you because that, that's a pretty cool example. It's very easy to see how the whole thing plays out and is so obvious. Um, yeah. It works if you've got more of a history brain than a science brain, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's very star bellied sneeches, if you remember that doctor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is. 
<laughs> it is very Starbucks Stitches. Stitches. That is very true. Yes. Bring it back to my level, Blab. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, oh. Bring it down to the brass. Tacks. Yeah. There you go. No. Starbelly Sneetches, um for the audience. If you're not aware, it's an old Dr. Seuss cartoon from the '70s, and it always struck me as like a uh, statement on racial bias or or stuff like that. But now I'm thinking of the science of it. <laughs> <laughs> Some were born with stars and some weren't <laughs> until that was not advantageous. Correct. Yes. Got it. Anything else for Shelley before we move on? I mean, there's going to be plenty, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Here's a question. In the light of all that, not only, I mean, we've got the fact that Diana's a weaver, but that once the spellbinding started to fall away, I mean, she, it seems like she, she was kind of an anomaly that such a powerful witch emerged after all these generations of mm-hmm. environmental effects and evolution and all that goes on. And then all of a sudden she, she's an anomaly because she pops back up and she's seems super powerful in relation to everybody else that's in 21st century world. Mm, yes. Yes and no. Um, so, well, so first off, if we're still, if we're sticking with an evolution discussion, there are um, different models of how evolution works. There is, uh, at the moment, because I haven't had enough coffee, the exact terms escape me, but uh-huh. one of them's like punctuated equilibrium. And that's the idea that you can make just a few big jumps to an angle. And the other is a more like steady state where you're making small changes throughout until you end up with the final state. So if we're assuming Diana's the final state. Under punctuated equilibrium, there would be just a few really powerful powerful ancestors in her background until you get to her. Under the other steady state one, and that's not what it's called, so any other biologist listening, don't yell at me. I haven't had enough coffee. Um, (laughs) Under the steady state, you know, there would be just a a slow increase in power, if you will, leading up to Diana. We know Sarah is acknowledged to be a very powerful witch. She just doesn't have... She's a a potions and and craft witch, as Mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, a more weaver kind of witch. And then there's Stephen... I mean, Stephen might be the flip side. He might represent more of the punctuated equilibrium model. You know, we don't know really anything about his family lineage. This is true. Neither we just, is Sarah. Right. Well, yeah, neither yeah, is Sarah. Right. Nobody else. Yes. Right. Huh. And we know and we knew Rebecca was very powerful too. Yes. Right. So so much okay. so that they used to get comments of so much power of those two being together. Right. Which raises a related question is okay, you've got uh, I think I was probably guilty of this is okay, two powerful witches their child's going to be greater than the, the sum of the two of them. They somehow amplify each other. But yeah, you can even as I say it out loud, it, I don't know if that's even a valid way to look at it. Hmm. You can. So <laughs> you guys are really dragging up the obscure, obscure biology this morning. Uh, <laughs> that's our job. Yeah. You're talking about something known as epistasis. Um, epistasis is the idea that you can have... Um, one gene product, for example, that impacts multiple very different phenotypes. Um, so if we think of, um, anybody know what Marfan syndrome is? I do not. Yes. Okay. All right, Jean, you want to give a history lesson about that? Marfan, well, Marfan syndrome, the best example of that is Abraham Lincoln. Yes. There's overly tall. You have, I hesitate to say odd facial features, but the, the facial development, lantern jaw. I'm trying to think what, what I just basically know the physical characteristics that, oh, long arms. Big hands. 
Right. So these are all skeletal features. So those all kind of link together. But also there are heart defects associated with Marfan syndrome. And there are other physiological effects that are outside the skeletal system. So you have a, yeah. a lot of phenotypic effects that apparently are not connected. They don't develop from the same original cells. They're not in the same, what appears to be the same simple genetic pathway. What they are is all controlled by one gene further up the path, and that's an epistatic gene. So it triggers a whole bunch of different impacts in a whole bunch of different cells. Um, so in theory, you can have something like a, a more than additive effect from one gene enhancing the work of other genes or one gene masking the effect of other gene products. So it's a ca- like a cascade, almost a cascade or say a domino? Um, sort of. A, so a domino effect would be just more like a linear control path, if you will. Like you can't uh, you can't flip the first domino and have a domino five down the line fall over. Okay, you have to kn- mm-hmm. you have to knock down everyone in the chain. That's a very traditional genetic pathway. But in epistasis, you knock over one domino and it triggers a cascade in five different streams, if you will. Ah, okay, excellent. Wow, all right, very interesting. <laughs> Anything were else? We going to, yes. <laughs> were, were we going to go there on a very high level, the origins of vampires? No, not today. Oh. Shelly wants, uh. wants more time to think about it. Okay. <laughs> I don't recall that being the answer in our pre-show, but okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, that was where I... I yeah. I'm sorry. Right. Whatever. Well, Jean, ask the, Jean well, says, say, say no, the question. Okay. Say the question, <laughs> and then we'll get back to it in another episode, maybe. How's that? Okay. See, now I've committed okay. Shelly for another one. See? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like how you did that. All right. This is very clever. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Here's, okay. Then, then let's go back on. I'll ask it. Okay. Here's a question I just want to throw out there that maybe we think about and come back to another day. Where did we get the first vampire from? I mean, we understand how new vampires are made, and you, the bite and all of that, but you still have to have the first vampire who didn't have anyone to be bitten by. Hmm. How does that work? Hmm. Can we figure out how that works? Um, we can speculate how that works. Okay. So, yes, there there are some different pieces of biology that I, I actually have a much more uh, scientific reading to-do list than I normally have. Um, <laughs> it's almost like going back to grad school trying to figure this stuff out. Um, but yes, I am puzzling through through some thoughts, um, and I think uh, Deb used Miriam to give us a little foresight into that in that first visit to the lab. When Miriam is explaining the very rapid DNA changes evidenced in archaeological samples of people who had died from deadly diseases like syphilis. Right. Hmm. Okay. So that's where All my right, thoughts well. are going. <laughs> So perhaps we can. Syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> there was an interesting. Co- I'm kidding. Uh, I kid. Matthew is I not kid. amused. Matthew would not be amused. <laughs> Matthew's, <laughs> Matthew's never amused. <laughs> Hilarious. All right. <laughs> So perhaps down the line we can pick your brain or hear your your yes. Once you get a chance, once you get a chance to read more. Once I get a chance yes. to read more, and I'm definitely going to need more paper for that one. 
<laughs> you could probably design a whole series of courses around this, I'm sure. And don't volunteer right? her for it or people will be pestering her. <laughs> so I will say it has crossed my mind. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, I already have, you know, one course that's it's much more about the history of supernatural creatures. And then I also have another course that's focused entirely on Carl Sagan. And so then I thought, you know, why don't I just bite the bullet and design a course around the science of all souls? Happy but to help. It might be a niche market. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, in a year or two when the TV kicks off, maybe. This is very true. Yeah. Yes. I'm telling you. You're welcome. You heard it here first, folks. You did. <laughs> maybe maybe a discovery of witches TV will will do for, you know, molecular biology what CSI did for forensic scientists. Maybe. I'm not sure that's a Ooh. good thing, but <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's the first time I really heard about chimeras was in Yeah. CSI Las the Las Vegas show. It came up in one of those episodes. So just saying. Nothing for Shelly, but Val, this is, I'm going to unexpectedly throw it to you because I, last time, uh, the blood type, we thought it was corrected and we, I just wanted to clarify our show notes because we had to go back and put like a asterisk in there for our own show notes because the AB positive blood type, we thought it was corrected and it's really not in some cases. No, it's not. And we, (laughs) (laughs) we did put it in the show notes and um, because the last time Shelly was here, we were like, no, the correct answer is AB positive. And if you have a newer book, It'll say AB positive. Apparently, that's not true. It's not true because Angela the next morning <laughs> was like, "Val, wait!" <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I looked through some of the new books that we just had signed at the con, and in one chapter that'll say AB negative, and in the same book, in the end of the chapters, it would say AB positive. So some of the books are kind of half right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So that's why I put that in the show notes. And I also tacked on an aside at the end of that episode with Shelly. But uh, yeah, that's a good point. It's good that we bring it up again. So we don't feel like total (laughs) idiots for leading you astray. So if your book says AB negative, it happens. Printers take the wrong master copy and print it. And whoops. And that's all I'll say about that. Well, not to mention the fact that anybody who picks up an audiobook is going to be wrong because it was read off of the original original version. Yeah, the first edition. So, so if it says AB negative, it's wrong. Yeah, and everybody knows it's wrong. So you don't need to write Penguin or Viking or Deb <laughs> or anybody else. We know it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, Deb even addresses it on our website and I'll throw the link on the show notes again just to make sure. All right. So are we ready to uh, discuss our thoughts on a discovery, which is after this reread, guys? Sure. I actually, and I have one thing that I I don't think we touched on in the last chapter episode uh-huh. that, that's been rattling around in my brain, and it's about the other books that Isabeau sent. Okay. And as we sort of, as well, as we're told, one of them was Shadow of Night by George Chapman, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. as Isabeau pulled the mom thing, and it's like, oh, okay, you asked for this one. I'll send you the ones now. 
next to it just in case you need them. Right. And then the whole thing with the notes he doesn't remember with the man- manicule and, and the underlying passages mm-hmm. and whatnot. And the question comes up is like, well, what was that? Okay, we spin it out to it was probably Gallo Glass having Shakespeare do forgeries, which we later learn about right. at the end of Shadow of Night, it's, which is kind of nice structurally from a literary standpoint, the way each book ended with that scenario. It's full, coming full circle. But if you, and I don't know why it never occurred to me before. George was on a linear timeline. Okay. Shadow of Night, especially in those portions, that was him telling Diana's story without really telling it. To me, I don't know. If, I, I always thought in light of that, maybe that was Gallo Glass's backup plan to leave the hint to Matthew about where he need when he needs to go in case he didn't catch the hint already. Hmm. You know, at some point in time, because why were those passages underlined? It was like, it was like one more right. clue that Diana was the one for him. It's that whole time loop thing again. Too. Yeah, exactly. Diana influenced his poem, The Shadow of Night. And, and that's also the poem that he dedicated to Matthew Royden. It certainly was. Yeah, I see what you guys are saying. And the time loop always throws me off because, okay, now jumping to another book. Remember the Book of Life? Matthew uh-huh. built that bedroom in the London house. Oh, yeah. I love that bedroom. And decorates it for Diana. For Diana. Yeah. And he didn't know it, but he was decorating it for somebody. And wasn't that the bed from Greyfriars, too? It was. Yes. A, he never got rid of it? Yes. Yeah. Or Blackfriars. <laughs> <laughs> La- lack of... Lack of... One of those friars. Lack of color. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Or friars. Friars. I don't remember if they were Dominicans, the Jesuits, or whatever. Franciscans. Right. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. And I was like, oh, he was subconsciously building it for Diana. However, he didn't know at the time. So when his old self comes back to replace the one that goes back in the future... Mm-hmm. Are the consciences of both Matthews kind of merged? You know, it's it, it reminds me of a line from Gladiator, and it doesn't. This doesn't explain anything, but Maximus says, "What we do in what we do in life echoes in eternity," and I almost feel like it's reverberation. Like he still it was influenced by everything around him was the same, but it's a different Matthew. Yeah, it's magic. Okay, mm-hmm. we we gotta have a little bit of magic yeah. in the story. Well, yes. yeah, it's magic because I'm too I'm thinking too much science. It's magic. <laughs> it's soulmates. And they might be the same thing. And they might be the yeah. same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I'm, th- I'm throwing out the romance thing. It's soulmates. That's, that was the, that was how I finally quit my brain from hurting. Well, Jean, you took it one bed. step further when, when we were talking about this. You said, um, I don't I don't remember your exact words, but you said something to the effect that Diane and Matthew had been shelved together with Faustus and the Shadow of Night have been f- yeah. shelved together on Matthew's shelves for centuries. Yeah. Matthew and Diana were next to each other from 1600s on. On because if Faustus you, you look, was yeah. Matthew. Hmm. You know, the- okay, now my head hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it. If, uh, and the dedication to... And, I, and, and I'm going to take it one step further. I mean, you've got Faust, which had the dedication from Kit to his sweet Matt. Right. Mm-hmm. You've got George's book shelved right next to it with his dedication to his dear friend, Matthew Royden. And then I always thought that George had a little bit of a crush on Diana in their time in 1590. He was always the one that was helpful and I mean it wasn't nearly as kind of creepy and obsessive as 
Kit, but I think he he was sweet on her. And, and some of that manifested in his poetry. And I don't know. It, it's kind of interesting if you think about it in that way. You've got Matthew and Diana who are soulmates and belong together with their stories written by people who felt love for them. Yeah. yeah. Who also happen to be two of the greatest, great literary minds of, of all eternity so far. So it's almost like he was on that path anyways. And Chapman was. And then Diana's visit just solidified it. And he, yeah. like you said, not idolized her, but just uh, she was just she made a, an indelible mark on his yeah, writing. Yeah. A muse, so to speak. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. I, yeah, I, I would go with muse versus crush. A muse is a crush, kind of. Yeah. In a way. I would. Yeah, I, well, I was just saying also, I mean, in his day-to-day interactions with her, he was always very solicitous and he wanted to help her fit in and for her plan to succeed and was willing <laughs> to take her around shopping. Right, right. <laughs> you know. there, there, there was a fondness there. The, the nice guy thing. Yeah. Nobody goes for the nice guys though. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not till it's too late. I'll say until you're like 50, you're like, what, what the hell? Yeah. What, was, what was I thinking? Oh, Why didn't I go for the nice guy? <laughs> I don't say that. I say I should have married for money, man. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, people. Just kidding. Yeah, I don't really say that. I either. know. <laughs> I think it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, a Discovery of Witches, what did we get out of it this time that we didn't get all the other times, guys? In a word, especially because of Shelley and the con. It's only this reread that everything jived with the con and Shelley now being our guest two times. The science. <laughs> <laughs> The Otherwise, I would be still bumbling in the dark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you know what? It, it sets me up for the book of life. I'm going to enjoy the book of life so much more now on having a better foundation of the science, I think. Yeah, I think so. Because the book of life was science. It was a lot of science. So. Yes. Yeah. Expect to come back then, Shelley. Hmm. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, more importantly, Shelley, what did you get from a discovery which is that wasn't science related? Um, um, so I think this this time around, now I did go back with, for this reread focused on pulling out specific pieces of science, but being a larger part of the discussion, I think I appreciated more of the connections and the Easter eggs that Deb put in and the foreshadowing she was already laying for everything that happens in the subsequent books. Um, you know, as, the, as an initial casual reader, while I loved the books, I glossed over a lot of that, I think, because I was just soaking up all the information. You know, mm-hmm. is, is the big piece of work. But to go back and to see the warp and the weft that Deb was weaving from the very beginning is kind of amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think I took away more empathy for characters because I did not have a whole lot of empathy for Diana the first time I read it. I just thought yeah. she was this character who got swept up in all of this stuff and she happened to be a witch and she happened to be a damsel in distress, and, but she fought it the whole way. And, you know, I'm the type of person, if you're going to be a damsel in distress, fucking be one. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you are, own Own the stuff. But I think I found a lot more in her, this reread, as far as what she had to deal with. And if I took 
Matthew out of the picture, she's very formidable and I didn't give her credit like I should have on first mm-hmm. read. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Deb has always said that the discovery of witches was about the mothers and it wasn't until this reread that I, I mean, yeah, I got it because she said it. But like I said, five four years ago, my daughter was not in the same place she is now. I mean, now she's 11. Now I am preparing her to go into the world and she's almost the, the age of Diana, you know, becoming a, her own witch when she had, you know, the failed test and all that. So I don't know. It, it resonated. Rebecca's story when uh, Diana was in LaPierre resonated with me a lot more than it ever did five years ago, just because I feel like they were trying to prepare her to go out into the world by herself. And that's what I'm, I'm in that same spot. So um, it was more touching to me this time around. Oh, and you and Sarah. Holy crap. I never thought <laughs> I'd ever see that <laughs> clip. Yeah, <I> <laughs> that too. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. For me, it was Marcus's time. Maybe it was because we know that his whole story's coming. So you paid and closer it, attention to him, maybe? Yeah. yeah. And and I don't know. The way, he, the way Matthew treated him like a child sometimes just really bugged me. Well, but that... A lot more than it did before. That goes to the idea that your kids, your kids are all never grow up. And they're always your kids. Yes. yes. Yeah. They're always your mm-hmm. kids. You hear how I talk about Devin when I'm off mic, right? <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. So true. <laughs> and she's 22. So <laughs> I, I, I can see that. I can see how Matthew, especially ingrained in his ways and Marcus yeah. relatively is young, very young compared to Matthew. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can see it. I can see how. He still sees that irresponsible kid who went out and made a whole bunch of baby vampires in uh, New Orleans. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) And he hasn't learned very much from that. (laughs) But that's how Matthew sees. Yeah. And falls in love with a girl on first sight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matthew can't say anything about that. But no. um, I actually wonder if. um, (laughs) But it won't stop him from doing it. That's That's the problem. I just thought of this, but I, Matthew being Matthew and not sharing things that he should, I wonder if part of his problem with Marcus's brood in New Orleans is guilt that he didn't tell Marcus about blood rage. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That could be. Could be. And when they went off to uh, take out a big part of his, or Marcus's family, Marcus had no idea why or how he always suspected. I think he suspected when uh, Juliet Mm -hmm. and Matthew came into town, but I don't really think he knew. And I'm amazed he didn't feel more betrayed in Book of Life, jumping ahead, of course, but or more angry. But I don't think that's who Marcus is. And, and the other thing is, too, is is like that, you, as you just brought it up, uh, the Matthew that we see in A Discovery of Witches and the way he interacts with Marcus, now it, when you factor in what we learn he had to do in the Book of Life and the fact that he's, well, there's more guilt he's carrying around, mm-hmm. but, you know, his son doesn't know what he had to do on his behalf. And given the fact that they probably wanted him to put down Marcus too and he's refused to do that and only called those who were actually exhibiting signs of blood rage that's true Philippe did in Book of Life Philippe did order well it was brought up that Philippe ordered Matthew's or Marcus's uh, demise so hmm I mean I don't know (laughs) 
I, I feel like I'm kind of in a stasis compared to you guys as far as the different rereads because you can look at it from the, the viewpoint of parents and that, that sort of evolution and given that this whole series is about families and I don't know. I just I look at different things and it's just it's a different journey for me. Right. And it's <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to explain it. Well, your viewpoint really helps us too. <laughs> you know? Sure. Because yeah. I, I can only see things when Sarah goes after Diana, I look at it as a mother figure dealing with a child that just won't comply. <laughs> Hello. But she's not a child. She's a 33-year-old woman. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's where I can see it. That's where I can see Sarah is like, this kid will not change. Still the same person, you know, because mm-hmm. what's the saying? You're basically who you are when you're five years old. You just gain more knowledge and strength yeah. and you are who you are. Stop it. You're scaring me. <laughs> <laughs> you just become this little choo-choo train that becomes a locomotive that becomes a <laughs> and I'm standing on the tracks the watching it train. Oh. Yeah, You've got the bullet train on your hands, Angela. Yes, yeah. I know. All you can do is step off the tracks and watch her go. That's all you can right. do. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Buy a ticket for the ride. <laughs> and occasionally try to fix those tracks ahead of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it doesn't derail. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, no. How about any of the other characters? Do you feel differently about them? Or, I mean, besides what who we talked about, Sarah and um, Diana, anybody, any new revelations? So one thing that clicked with me this time that had not before, um, and this, we did, this was discussed in one of the previous episodes, was that Diana seems to be the only one that can see the witches. But then you brought up, I think Val, it was you, that Emily is the only other one that sees the goddess. Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there, there's a, I think it's easy to gloss over Emily. Yeah, I always call her a noodle yeah. character. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elaborate on what that means. Uh, a noodle character. I mean, uh, for me, Emily didn't stand out as anyone particularly significant in the story and all my rereads, except for maybe this one. Uh, a noodle character like noodles, like uh, it could be linguine, it could be spaghetti, it could be a bow tie, it could be an elbow. It's all still pasta, right? <laughs> and, and until you add the sauce, it's just pasta. It's just yeah. pasta. Right. So she was really indistinguishable to me. She was kind of a noodle. And the reason why I br- brought it up is because of the casting, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, because of the casting and somebody was bringing up, oh, who did, uh, I, I forgot who it was. I was talking to somebody and they said, oh my God, can you believe who they cast for Emily? And I'm like, eh, Emily's kind of a noodle for me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, Penny, Linguini, whatever. Still a noodle. You put a sauce on it. Okay. It tastes different. You know? yeah. But yeah, they have cast kind of a, a reasonably big name. Yes. Mm-hmm. Harold's wife from The Blacklist. The Blacklist. That's the one with the... Um, mm, James Spader. James Spader. James Spader. A Hello. ball James Spader. <laughs> yeah, but he still has that James Spader brain. Uh, he's still got the snark about him. That's what I know. This, yes. This, yes. This he, may have, the, he may not have 
have aged as well as he could have, but I think he still looks snuff. He still looks the same. He's still got the same smirk yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying, his, you know, he doesn't look 20 years younger than he is. He looks like he's 50, which is cool. <laughs> but his Well, I mean, cuz he probably is. <laughs> his, persona, his persona has always been what really sells it for me cuz he's always had that yeah. edge and that smir- snark mm-hmm. even when he's playing a nice guy character. He's stuff in Pretty in Pink. He's yes. always got that stuff. Yeah, he's the snark. He, yeah. He sent me down the road to bad boy assholes. Uh. <laughs> it's all his fault. It's Steph. Uh, okay. Steph set me on the road to ruin. <laughs> that being said, we'll move on now. <laughs> I know. Since we're talking about like '80s characters, for me it was uh, Randy on Frickin' Valley Girl. <laughs> oh, I love Randy too. But he was kind yeah. of a good guy, decorated in bad boy, and I think that's what I go for. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so okay. Uh, off the hey, subject. It was rich. All right. Wait. No. Well, it's only fair. Angela and Shelley. Who was, who was your eighty? Who was your eighties guy? Christian Slater. Oh, <laughs> nice time. Good. Now he is the ultimate bad boy. JD. God, I love that movie so so much. And I'm a Veronica in a sea of heathers. I, I think my eighties guys: Nick Cage and Val Kilmer. Oh yeah, Ooh, Ooh. another good choice. Very yeah, good yeah, choice. Yeah. Yes, very nice. Excellent choice. Okay, millennials. Well, I'll put that all in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> there will be links in the show notes so you can see who yes. we're talking there will about. Be a qu- there will be a quiz of eighties quotes too. <laughs> the point is, don't picture them now. Now, I'm going to have picture uh, a picture him then. Yes. And then, you know. We're time walking, people. <laughs> We're time walking. Yeah. And now we've gone out of the ditch with that statement. Thank you. <laughs> I fixed it all. It all ties back in. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh. <laughs> oh, and I owe a dollar in the swear jar, uh, by the way. You know, if I go back and charge for each and every single time... And all of these episodes I just put away on that hard drive. We would be financed for all we're going out, for all. We're going out for dinner in Philly. Yeah, for sure. we'd be financed for the next six Allsouls cons. <laughs> well, keep keep it in an Excel spreadsheet. I'll calculate the interest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll go rob a bank. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh! So any um, here's what I wanted to ask. Were there any significant events in A Discovery of Witches that felt like a catalyst for you? Hmm. Oh, man. Uh, I I really want to think about this. Um, Yeah. Because, well, my go-to answer is always, don't be a good girl and wait your turn. Right. That's always been a catalyst for me because that's kind of when she also, like, flips a switch and decides she can do this. Yeah. And it was, and I loved it because she was kind of like, it's like, okay, Matthew, just stay out of this. This is between me and her. She needs to hear this. Just shut up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's always been a catalyst for me. But I think another one was, um, I really related more to Isabel this time around. Mm. When she finally just, you know, smacked him and said, dude, you now she, she 
just stepped right up. Yeah, and as I think back on it, to your earlier question, I've seen, I, I'm starting to see Isabel in a different light, too. How so? In, in a good way? In a good way. No, I, I, I just always kind of liked her because of her snark and her elegance, but now it's like... Yeah, I think I think we said it in our last episode. Captain of the ship. Yeah, that when we were saying who, when Hamish was sent to deal with Matthew, we decided, oh, is Isabel decided that, you know, she was acting as the secret weapon, as always. And I, yeah. I didn't know, when, I mean, yeah, Philippe said it, or Matthew said that Philippe said it, but I never really saw it until, like, these rereads. And you're like, oh, yeah, she is instrumental in a very quiet way. She moves things forward, and she moves people like chess pieces. Yes. Yep. And she's very subtle about it. You never know what she's mm-hmm. doing, but she's doing it. When the letters went out that time, Hamish mm-hmm. got all pissy when he got his letter, so he figured he'd visit Isabeau, and Isabeau's like, why don't you take this stuff to Matthew? What do you think of that? Yeah, and what's so funny is they, the, the children, especially Matthew sees, they always view Isabeau in this very insular, vampiric queen kind of way, like she doesn't deal with other people, and then, to find, you know, when, and this is the t- first time it really occurred to me, it's like, wait a minute, she and Hamish are cozy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of weird, it's like when you find out your parents have a relationship with a friend of yours that's totally independent of the fact they're your parent. Yeah, yeah. I think actually, and then, like, Philippe's other kids kind of saw her as a nuisance. I feel like that. Yeah. I, I, it's like, oh, we got to get around Isabeau, though. Right. Yeah. And Philippe knew what he was dealing with. It, even uh, Gowl Glass's comment in uh, Shadow of Night, when he says, we tell Grandpa how to handle Granny all the time, but he doesn't listen because Philippe knows. She doesn't right. need handling. No. And even if you try, that's going to be a big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> well, Philippe got an arrow on the side once. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's true. Well, I don't think that was intentional, though. Whoops. Uh, or was okay. it? Oopsie. <laughs> Oopsie. Yeah. Was it <laughs> <laughs> You never know. Yeah, that's that telenovela answer again, Angela. Or was it? Hmm. Or was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. For me, I think this time I saw the catalyst of her deciding to use her magic up in the library. That changed mm, all events. Yeah, it did. Yeah. The one time she dis- like she counts the time she uses magic and this time was the one that snagged her. <laughs> Literally. Wonder, here's a funny question. I wonder if the man, I mean, it always seems like the Bodleian kind of has a magic all its own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like almost like the Bodleian set her up and made sure that the kick at stool was nowhere near where she needed it. <laughs> <laughs> it hid the stool on her. Damn it, I got to use my magic. So she had to use her magic to get the book off the top shelf. Yeah. How about you, Shelley? Anything stick out for you? I think, hmm, what did stick out for me this time? I- I think I noticed more right from the get-go Diana's physical reactions to touching as uh, the manuscript. You know, the tingles and the shocks and Mm. attributing it this time not to the magic in the book, but to what the book is made of. You know, since she, you know, since she inherently uses her magic to to know what kind of creature is looking at her. Yes. That Mm -hmm. she recognized subconsciously from the get-go that that book was made of creatures. All the creatures in the book trying to talk to her. Yeah. Mm. I like it. It's deep. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, that's true. I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I always thought of that. I thought of just the book is just talking to her or or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think up until this time, it was always, well, the book is just magic. There's just so much magic that that's what she's feeling. But this time I was like, no, she's actually feeling the creatures. Yeah. Trying to communicate with her. And that brings up another question. Now, she felt the tingles and the nudges and the cold stares. Did other witches feel that or is it just her? You know, 
what? Maybe we'll find out in the TV show. Yeah, or in the the world of assholes. Yeah, maybe because it, that's kind of unclear to me. Because I don't know if it's just because most of the discovery of witches is from Diana's point of view, which is another thing that was uh, something I was more cognizant of of this on this reread. Maybe it's just because of all the background noise with the TV show too. But it was like I was far more cognizant of this is like pretty much a singular viewpoint. Yeah, than I had been in past rereads. So I took a lot more things with a grain of salt. Yeah, true. Yeah, because even the chapters where Matthew goes hunting with Hamish, there's not a lot of depth to that other than the verbal conversations. Yeah, it's a third person omniscient kind of point of view almost. Speaking of the TV show, we've had developments on that too. We do. You ready to go into some news? Sure. I think so. All right. We got some news, Angela. What is it? (laughs) <laughs> We've had more casting announced, and it looks like we had uh, the mothers announced, meaning we've had Sarah, Agatha, Isabeau, and Emily, and we have Alex Kingston as Sarah. We have Lindsay Duncan as Isabeau. We have Tanya Moody as Agatha, and Valerie Pettiford as Emily. Yay! Yes. Yeah, yay, yay <laughs> I mean, and, there, there was a lot to unpack with all that, too, because there were canon changes. And, and we'll unpack it a little bit later. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was a big day. It was. And then even more recently, we found out who Nathaniel Wilson is. So we now have Agatha and Nathaniel. And Daniel Ezra will be playing Nathaniel. And pictures and uh, IMBD or DB. All that'll be, yep, yeah. all, all be in the show notes. And they're all very highly competent, accomplished actors. So we know yes. we know the characterizations are going to be in good hands. And there were some hints of Timothy, but there's no official announcement there yet. So we'll have to wait. and So we'll shut <laughs> it. We'll wait. And we'll zip it. Make that another time. Yep. So that basically leads for announcements. We've got Mart and Timothy and Baldwin. Um, <laughs> you, say that, you say that very nicely. I know. <laughs> I'm trying to think who else is left. No, for Discovery of Witches, I think that's it. Really? Yeah. We're really questioning. We got we got an announcement of Sean and we haven't seen him in any of yeah. the on-location stuff and no mention of Fred. him, which is sort of disappointing considering he's the Fred. high librarian. Damn. Or no yeah. Fred we, either. Right. Where's Fred, Fred, damn it? <laughs> And, you know, it's so funny, too, because we already recorded our episode for the first two chapters of uh, Shadow of Night. Our recording schedule is kind of goofy this time because we've had real life things in the way. But, Shelly, we got to like we're catching up on our old housekeeping and we we got to your DILF comment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'll let you hear it the next episode, but I got confused as to what you meant, but the other two helped me out. So, Oh, okay. You, so, you, you didn't... <laughs> you, wait. Valerie blanked on the ac- uh, acronym. I was going to say, I'm way. surprised that... Okay. Well, I, it's not normally used in that gender direction, but why not? Yeah. yeah. Oh, actually, it is used in that gender direction. You're just not running around in the right <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> Needless to say, I'll just say this. I went with dude versus dad. D- but the, dude is fine. Yeah. See? Okay. Dad is better, though. Dad is better, but... <laughs> yeah. So... I like that symmetry. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, we do cover that in the next episode, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> You'll learn something new every episode. Right. All right, so that ends news. Let's go to housekeeping. Jean, why don't you go first? I will go first. Let me pull my housekeeping to the forefront. It's from Linda Zip. Yay! Yay! Woo, Linda. Mother. 
Moms. Okay. Okay, this is from Linda. So, it's November 1st, and I just listened to this episode and heard your shout-out to me, or at least to my hair. What an honor. I will be hanging out next week with fellow All Souls counter who I met, Nola. Proof positive that coming alone is not an issue. Also, as soon as I find my notes for my absinthe class, I will be sending them on to you. <laughs> Demons Excellent. forever. Although, since I was also born on August 13th, I think I'm a witch. Linda. Nice. Aw, thanks, Linda. And I love it. How perfect that you happen to catch us on an episode where we have our <laughs> team absinthe. <laughs> where we have yeah. team absinthe. <laughs> And availability. I love that she met someone and now she's friends. That's what happens in the all source world. You meet people and you become friends. And Philadelphia is shaping up to be fun, too. I think we're going to have a great time. Definitely. Angela, you have something. Let me just start out by saying thank you. You're keeping me alive, not letting me die on the vine yes, because I have right. a review. She's our Tinkerbell. You have to clap to keep her alive. It's a review. Instead of a yes. clap, it's a review. Yes, it is. It's a five-star review Yay. from Lauren I526. Thank you, Lauren I526. A must for All Souls Trilogy fans. I've been reading and rereading Deborah Harkness's All Souls Trilogy series since it began in 2011. This is my favorite All Souls trilogy podcast. I love how Val, Jean, and Angela explore the big ideas and the minutiae of the series and bring in guests to help along the way. At various points, I've jumped down the rabbit holes to explore the history, locations, and personalities in the books, just like they do. It's so satisfying to find like-minded book fans. My only regret is not listening to this podcast sooner. Oh, that's my regret, too. Damn it. You know what? <laughs> you, you, found, you found us, though. You found that's us. That's what counts. So. Yay! <laughs> Thank you for the review. Really appreciate it. And that does it for how Housekeeping. So, <laughs> all right. So, let's go to save it for the show. You guys ready for this one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Save it for the show. Save it for the show. Guys, save it for the show. Today's save it for the show. But Isabeau, though, go. Okay. I'll, I'll start first. <laughs> okay. I'm sure Lindsay Duncan is a fabulous actress. I'm looking forward to see what she's bringing to the show. But I will say my my argument goes more towards canon. I I, mm-hmm. I think the explanations that have been given for casting her older seem to mess with the canon that's Deb established her, for her vampires and that it, it's logically dis, disjunctional. Okay, I made up a word, but... It's a it, word <laughs> now. You almost... It's a, it, now. It's a non it's a Disjunction event. There, it's a non-destruction yes, event. There you <laughs> yes, go. Yes, I use science. Anyways. <laughs> but anyways, back, back to being serious. I, my brain probably spins in too many directions, and I'm not your typical TV viewer. But in this case, I think one, I believe two reasons were given. One was that uh, it would be hard for a TV viewer to function, uh, to process and, and believe the mother-son relationship, which I think is a discredit to most people coming to view this because, I mean, True Blood, mm. Buffy, that visual... Even Twilight. Repres- Twilight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That visual yeah. representation has always been there. I mean, Darla and Angel. Darla and Spike. She was both of their makers, but she looked no older than they did. Pam and Eric. Pam and Eric, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and that is like, yeah, whatever. But more importantly, the, the argument that grief-aged is about, it doesn't... I, I guess if it doesn't play across all of the vampires who've lost their mates, it rings hollow to me because it, it also, in a way, in the way my brain functions, it makes the grief of Miriam and Fernando less important or not 
not good enough to warrant the aging process. They didn't grieve enough. And right. it bothers me because you've got Miriam who spent a thousand years mourning her mate and chasing Matthew around with all his freaking nonsense. Mm-hmm. And you've got Fernando and, and those beautiful, eloquent speeches he makes in the Book of Life where it's very, very clear that he will never quit mourning Hugh. Yes. Right. But, you know, it, it hurts some of the emotional resonance for the other characters for me. For me... If grief and trauma is an age inducer, then shouldn't Matthew look a lot older than he does? Because he does he does give himself grief daily, right? Wouldn't it be incremental mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, and he had a t- he took his father's life with, by his hand. Yeah, I mean, I mean, shouldn't he be gray by now? That's why when I first read that, I, I think did she put that on Twitter? Was it on Twitter? It was on Twitter. Yes, I, I, yes. I was like, whoa, wait, so they age now under conditions. So this has just diverged the entire canon of a discovery of which is the book and a discovery of which is the TV show. So in my head, I know, Gene, you were thinking about the other characters. In my head, I was thinking, how? what kind of storyline are they going to come up with to make this work? It felt like they were bending the storyline to fit the actress with this mm-hmm. statement. That's why it was problematic. Right. Do you think possibly... For the TV show, though, they just don't, they'll never address it. She, like, they'll never make the comments about yeah. her previously I, looking yeah. younger. Yeah, I do think that. You know, to, Which, and here's the other thing, too. I mean, I mean, she's supposed, part of Isabel's backstory is she inspired the legend of the of Helen of Troy. Just throw that out there. Well, elaborate I on mean, that a little bit for the listeners. Well, when we talk about Easter eggs and whatnot, one of Isabel's names is Helen. And uh, at one point, people wanted to say that Isabel was Helen of Troy, but when you back it all out, it's like, no, the exploits of Isabel inspired the legend that humans know about Helen, Helen of Troy. Troy. And, Hel- and Helen of Troy was the beauty who launched a thousand ships and started the Trojan War when Paris kidnapped her uh, following the judgment of Paris, where he had to pick out the most beautiful of the goddesses to win the golden apple. And uh, Helen's father was basically selling her off to the highest bidder as far as husbands go, and she was set to marry Menelaus, but Paris fell in love with her and stole her. And the Greeks and the Trojans got in a big fat war and yeah, we all know how badly that ended. Or maybe we don't. That's a story for another time. So your question is, would a lady in her mid-60s who appears in her mid-60s be able to launch that? I think that I think selling that backstory becomes harder. Maybe she's a milk. As opposed to <laughs> <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> let's get let, let, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and listeners, keep in mind, this is all coming from someone who is 50-ish. Yeah. 50-ish. There you go. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being... You're not being ageist. There are no millennials on this. Ageist. ageist right. <laughs> yeah, so right. I'm not being ageist because I'm about... The, I'm, I'm pr- quickly approaching that age. But I, I, from a logical perspective, it, it, that explanation puts a lot of other backstory, makes it problematic, and makes me wonder whether much of it's going to translate to TV. Yeah. I felt that it was almost knee-jerk, honestly. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong. I, it's just, it felt like a knee-jerk reaction. I don't want the explanations, honestly. I don't want the canon changes. I don't want the explanations of why they cast who they cast or who their backstories are. They're the they're the actors that we cast, and that's the way it's going to be. That would have been good enough for me. It would have been good not, enough for not, me, not, too. Now, now let's go back and change. The mom answer would have been better, not let's... Yeah, because that changes canon, and it makes the mind spin, and it causes a bigger problem than it needs to be. Well, yeah. and I've always gone into this, like, I love the books and I'm going to 
mm-hmm. keep an open mind with the TV show. So I've always separated the two and go, okay, this is the direction that they're going. That's fine. But once they, you start trying to explain and marry the books and the TV show, then it doesn't work for me as much. Yeah. 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 You know, well, and I will explain. say, I love and, uh, Agatha and Nathaniel. I, d- I just love that they are exploiting the Aboriginal connection because in a way it ties in Stephen more because Stephen and his time walking would take place in the outback of Australia sometime. And that brings that whole milieu of magic mm-hmm. into focus. Okay. So I'm going to jump on this bandwagon. Oh, why was anybody shocked by Agatha? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, everything about that woman's description. Yeah. She was she right. was never white. You know, I mean, I yeah, I, yeah, I had yeah. to just throw that out right. there. But there was nothing about her description. They said she was blonde, though blonde with darker skin. It was like an odd combination, blonde. which is very Aboriginal. They yes. often have yeah. very light colored yeah. hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, I mean, I, and that's exactly what I was picturing uh, Aboriginal and maybe more of a P- Pacific Islander kind of way. But Tanya reminds me a lot of uh, what is her name, Lupita Nyong'o, yeah. the yes. actress. Uh-huh. I mean, they're both gorgeous. Yeah. But I guess I was expecting someone maybe a tiny bit on the fairer skin side, like you said, with the blonder hair, mm-hmm. more some of the more traditional Aboriginal, at least what I'm I'm used to seeing mm-hmm. in other photographs when you're with articles about Aboriginal issues in, in Australia and whatnot. Yeah, I think Aboriginals, mm-hmm. though, it's like if you go to South America, the spectrum is wide. Oh, <laughs> oh definitely. Definitely. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I was not shocked at all by that casting. And I really kind of liked it. Yeah, a lot. I did, too. And I, I don't mind Emily, but I, I've read a lot of the comments in our Facebook group and around Twitter, you know, they expected her to be a little more boho and a little more, you know. Yeah, the boho, this this throws me off more than anything else. Yeah. I'll, I'll own that one. <laughs> the, at least the headshot that they have used for um, Valerie, her name's Valerie, right? That was mm-hmm. cast? Yeah. yeah, pedophore, As, yeah. Yes. She is gorgeous and nothing of my mental image of Emily was gorgeous, which again is maybe, maybe because Emily <laughs> comes across as a noodle and she's not. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, but, but, <laughs> For me, Valerie looks like Dominique Devereaux from Dynasty. She is ultra glamorous, beautiful. She's not a child's li- children's librarian. Listen to me. Dominique Devereaux was Val goals when, <laughs> when Val was in her team. I'm like, that's who I want to be. Dominique. Yes, please. Oh, Diane, I love Diane Carroll. I mean, she's just mm. fabulous and, and Valerie's cutting that same mold. Yeah. I was gonna say, now, now, the only problem I, I run into with her, mm-hmm. all these years you know the whole okay Deb stuck it to Cotton Mather and gave her uh, a descendant a descendant gave him a descendant a witch. gave him a descendant mm-hmm. descendant who was a witch mm-hmm. that's cool she makes her African American that's cool too which in fact might, which is really it might which I is really add interesting. Though, might I add this is an aside there are no black people in freaking upstate New York <laughs> <laughs> maybe onesie twosies maybe she's one of the onesie twosies but talk about holy crap it's like when i go visit my my husband's parents in maine yeah. looking for anybody darker than pink <laughs> you can't <find> <laughs> Are you saying you stick out like a sore thumb, uh, Valerie? A little bit. A little bit. And I am a lighter person. <laughs> However. <laughs> you ain't that light. <laughs> well, you know, as far as black people on the spectrum, I am considered on the lighter side. So Yes, but I'm saying you're not as light as most of the people running around me. No, no. <laughs> so she will stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, just that. And it's also with Sarah, if she comes out with a Brooklyn accent, 
in upstate New York, oh, yeah. I will have problems. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> getting back. Getting back to the Emily Mather backstory. Sorry. No, oh, no. But but the, the thing was that was so cool about it is you know when that sort of popped up, he had some very yes, he was a slave owner mm-hmm. as happened, but he had some pretty progressive views about slavery for the 1600s and also permitted his some of his slaves bought their freedom and. He he educated them. And there was one slave of his that was written about that was very interesting because it tied into smallpox inoculation, Shelley. Mm-hmm. That was my gut reaction that, okay, that's the tie-in for Emily because most slaves kept their master's name. Turns out I was wrong. Cotton Mather's her great-great-grandfather and Tichaba's her great-great-great-whatever grandmother. So He made some visits to the barn. Hmm. No, he made some visits to the jail mm. because that was, Tichaba was belonged to Samuel Parrish. Tichibo was never Cotton Mather's slave. No. Okay. Problematic. A little bit. Hopefully they ignore that or work it out. (laughs) I hope they do work it out. Oh, wow. I hope they do work it out because I know Dub's a real stickler for history and I don't know that there's any implication in history that something like that happened. So to the audience, I just want to say, yeah, sounds like we're bitching a little bit, but kind of could see how some of this is problematic to people who have read the books for a very long time and have looked at the characters and looked at the background. So a lot of it is surprising, but yes, it is the TV show. So it hasn't closed our mind to the TV show. No, we'll not at all. Not at all. And certainly not the actress. She's, I mean, she's going to be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. I'm sure she'll pull it off beautifully and all of this would be forgotten. And if you guys catch me next year, I'll be like, what are you talking about? I don't know what episode you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> I don't know what I said a year ago. I don't care if it's like recorded for posterity. It changed my mind. Much like, like Matthew changes his mind throughout the course of the books. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. It's called, it's called being an adult. <laughs> Nice. I'm going to grow up now. Yay. (laughs) Yay. That that borrows from our next episode when uh, someone said, well, you hate witches. Not this one. So much I married her. (laughs) I like this one, though. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think this is a good point to uh, take a break. And when we come back, last thoughts and things we can't let go of. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, you can find this show wherever it is you like to listen to your favorite podcast shows. Apple Podcast users, we'd love it if you've left us a five-star rating and a review that helps us get found. Also, if you have some like-minded people around you, tell a friend. Tell them about us. Give the gift of demons. Follow us on social media. We are Demons Domain or Demons Discuss. Email us directly. We are at DemonsDiscuss at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. Now, there's two ways you can do that. Give us a call at 360-519-7836. Or you can reach us on SpeakPipe. And that is speakpipe.com slash demons discuss. Now, if you want to participate in our episodes, you can become a discusser. And how you do that, you go to demonsdiscuss.com. Scroll down, fill out the little short form, put your name and email address in there. Then there's that spammer code. So be sure to fill that out and click submit. And that's it. You become a discusser and we'll send you emails once or twice a month and then you can participate in each show. 
One last thought, and I'll let you be. Visit our home base. That is demonsdomain.com. Everything we're doing is going to be found on that website. Giveaways, articles, news, see Angela's adventures in the All Souls universe. She's got many. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the internet. Okay, so does anybody have any last thoughts? I have a polite one, actually. So, yeah, I can go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, Shelley. Okay, last thoughts. So, as a person who uh, glossed her way through high school history and then, like, AP tested out of college history, I am really, really looking forward to the podcast for Shadow of Night because I know that you lovely demons are going to bring so much more depth to my understanding of that text. Wow. We had so much fun yeah. doing the first two chapters. <laughs> Oh, my oh, God. God. And audience, yeah. we are going to be doing them um, two chapters at a time because... There's so much stuff. We'll wind up having four-hour episodes if we don't. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, you just put the pressure on us, Shelly. <laughs> hey, turnabout's fair play. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is grab your Red Bull or get your caffeine or whatever gets you going, whether it's your peppermint oil or whatever, your smelling salts, because we do clip a Long and it was so much fun to do it. Yes. We were on fire. Holy. <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah, we were. Yeah. Jean, any last thoughts, dear? Oh, my, I'm sorry to say goodbye to a Discovery of Witches, but I am so eager for all the discussions coming up on Shadow of Night, mostly because my big change this read-through is Kit. Yeah. So it's going to be a lot of fun champion, championing Kit. Against Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, I got I you back, Valerie. <laughs> You know, I'm not, it's not going to be the same champion that Baldwin gets, but. Yeah. Well, he needs an advocate, are, I think. He needs an advocate, I, and I'm feeling. I've always been his advocate. I've always liked yes, it. Yes, Angela, too. With the, you guys are, with the you guys are good advocates, just like I was. And, the, and all the poetry that ties into this, yeah. this whole book is just going to be so yeah. much fun. Just like I championed Sarah, regardless of what you guys thought. <laughs> hey. Yes, yeah, that's Not true. so much in the fact that um, Marlo has been declared a co-author of. Of, was it Henry Six? Yeah, yeah. Last Donald week, six. so there was. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, it was six. Yep. So there. Yeah. Eh. Yep. Still don't like him. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Fine. Angela, shall I go to you or come uh, back to you? Sure. All right. No, I'll say it real quick. And it's, I was just thinking about it because my rigorous travel schedule is over for the year and I'll resume again next year. But it reminds me that a long time ago, I went on a museum trip and we never published the pictures or did a write-up. And I think I shall do that very soon because these are pictures that I don't think a lot of people have been privy to see, um, but they're, what, 1,000, 2,000 years old? Yes. Yeah. And I'll just leave it at that. But it's it's a really cool uh, exhibition that I got to see, and it totally ties in the the, the Declaremonts, the early years. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh. That, which reminds me, I need to get out there this week. Uh, we've got something going on at the Kimball that is Sarah, her smart-ass comment, Explored. Ooh, and I'll leave like that it. at that. Okay. Yeah. So some blog posts may be coming from Jean and I, and we'll see what happens. Yay! That's what normally happens. I go on these trips and I keep things in the vault. I don't readily share them right away until the time is right. And then, hey, I got a picture of that. Look at that. Okay, so. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's see. Let me see. Oh, I wanted to bring up our jewelry sales. I did initially say they were going to be ready in time for Christmas, but now we are waiting for guidelines from 
the legal team over at debharkness.com <laughs> to see what we can or cannot sell as far as quotes, as far as images. I mean, certain things we know we can because they're out there. There are things that Deb borrowed that actually exists out there, like Mad, Bad, and Dangerous. No, we can sell that, you know. Yes, um, Creative Commons, no copyright. No copyright. Uh, a digitized picture of the witch ball, which is something that Deb took from real life. So that we can do. But as far as the jewelry, a lot of that contains very um, All Souls trilogy specific things. So, you know, we don't want to step on toes. The jewelry might be delayed and I'm sorry, it won't be available for Christmas. Um, everything that we sold at All Souls Con, 100% went to the Bodleian. 100%. We took none of that home. Mm-hmm. It was all donated to All Souls Con and that all went to the we Bodleian. We donated the cost of production as well. So. Cost of production, everything was donated. Just so you guys don't think, hey, we're, you know, raking in all this cash on Deb's back. No. And that's not our intention. So we're going to wait. There might be a delay, but uh, when they're available, we'll definitely announce them. So there's that. And also, don't forget to listeners, especially if you're a regular listener, don't forget to join Demonic Discussers. It's a small, intimate group that we reserve just for our listeners. And that's all I'm going to say about that. If you don't listen regularly, you're probably not going to enjoy our group Mm -hmm. talk. I mean, because (laughs) (laughs) honestly, if you listen regularly, podcasting is so intimate, right? We say things on this podcast that any normal person just tuning in will be like, what the hell? (laughs) So if you listen to us for a while and you can jive with what we say and how we think, you pretty much know that. You'll be the person to enjoy a group chat with other listeners of this podcast. And that's the only reason why we're making an exclusive. No other reason. It's And also, we don't want a whole lot of lurkers. We don't want people that won't contribute to the dynamic. We're keeping it small and intimate. And we also want people to have a safe place that they feel they can speak their mind. Yeah, like we have these microphones. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Not everybody has that. One of our favorite things we hear in reviews is we they the listener feels like they're having a conversation with their friends, and that's basically what the discussion group is. It's not supposed to be huge, you know, tons of people. We want it to be like you're with your friends. So yeah, to me, it's like gathering with your your girlfriends by your lockers in between classes without the teachers hearing what you're saying, or at least theoretically. Theoretically, exactly. No one wants to feel monitored in there. No one wants to feel judged in there. And they don't. Shelly's part of it. What do you think, Shelly? I think the best thing about being an adult is being able to have, uh, where's the swear jar? Wild ass conversations. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, everyone will be like, oh, this was fun. Okay. Well, we know that this is what Deb actually said. And none of us are Deb, so we don't know what she thought. And that's fine. You know, we could have a conversation and speculate and go down different rabbit holes. I mean, you know, we were all recently chasing something and I threw up a zebra picture because there's a fairly good chance we were down major zebra path. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But on the other hand, oh, yeah. it was fun. You yeah. know, okay, we're wrong. We're not wrong. Whatever it may be. You know, I, I hope I'm not going to be drug out in the street and tarred and feathered and publicly whipped for what I said. And don't push yeah. me if you want to try it, you know? And then on the same same path, it's like, well, if somebody points out, well, you forgot, you know, there's this big old fact sitting over here that doesn't factor into it. It's like, oh, well, that just kind of killed that whole theory. It's like, we're also not going to be like, oh, my God. 
God, who killed conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It's kind of like, well, all right, sorry, logic. Logic just threw up a roadblock on that path. Let's go down a different path. Right. Yeah. But that's also the great thing because we all remember different details. Like different details are personally relevant to all of us. So when everyone comes together, then yeah, somebody points out, hey, you guys forgot that so-and-so said this. Oh, you're right. Hmm. Oh, so much for that one. Yeah. It was fun yeah. talking about it, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like we'll never find something else to talk about. Right. Because it usually I think happens it's good to brain exercises. Oh, yeah. It's, it's good brain. It's, some people do Sudoku and crossword and all that. We do this. Yeah. <laughs> Whether we're right or wrong, it exercises your brain and you learn stuff along the way. Mm-hmm. So the link will be in the show notes, people. And if you listen to us and you like what we have to say, you're welcome to join. Make sure you answer question two because that's important. We're expanding our screening process. Don't take it personal. We're screening everybody. And I personally declined four people this week. So it's not you. (laughs) It's not you. We're not just singling you out. I need everybody to answer the questions so we can make sure that it's a safe place, a good place for all members to be comfortable to spew their minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. The end. And and work out their thoughts and work Mm -hmm. out their, you know, their opinions and their feelings. Mm -hmm. Angela Page called it a soft place to land. That's right. Heretical opinions are welcome. And encouraged. <laughs> Definitely encouraged. All right. So I think we can say goodbye on that note, guys. Goodbye. Bye. Farewell. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Demon kiss. Mwah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time, audience. Mm-hmm.